0: Okay, we've been going through gospel of John and we last class we had 2 weeks ago we went through the uh, first most of the of John chapter 4 so we're going to go through John and John chapter 4 and John chapter 5 so anybody who's who's in remote can just put the phone on on mute right now i want to start by reading John chapter 4 starting in verse 46 we're going to pick up right where we left off John chapter 4 In verse 46, I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And he was, as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was the same hour which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So storyline here, Jesus departs from Samaria. We talked in the last class, Galilee is in the north, Samaria is in the middle, and Judea is down in the south where Jerusalem is. So he leaves Samaria where he encountered the woman at the well and heads north up into, into, uh, into, into Galilee. And he comes to uh, the village at Cana. Uh, the place where he turned the water into wine, a nobleman comes up whose son is in Capernaum, about 15 miles away, and he asks Jesus to come and heal his son, who's near death with a severe fever. So Jesus does not go to see the boy. Instead, he just tells his father that his son will live. So the father departs, and the servants meet him on the way back and tell him his son's fever left him. He says, what time did it happen? And he says the seventh hour, which is, you know, the the clock starts at 6 a.m. at sunrise, so it figures about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and he realizes, oh, that's the same time that Jesus told me your son's going to be healed. So he believes at that point in time, and his whole household believes now. My tendency, as I'm reading the scriptures, to be perfectly honest with you, is to, I wouldn't say skip over the miracles, but I would say I, 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 I go through them in a little faster clip than I do the teachings, because I'm focused on what did Jesus teach? All right, he's the son of God, he performed miracles, but what did he teach looking for the wisdom, the the understanding, or the commands, or things like that. So I tend not to focus that much on those things. And I think of where it says in First Corinthians chapter two that Jews look for miraculous signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And I'm more like the Greeks. I want to know. I want this. I want the, I'm looking for the spiritual wisdom. So, uh, but I've got. I said that. What is there? I need to learn about this. And uh, so. I started asking some questions about this to try to dig a little deeper. The first question that I had was, why in the world did the man think that Jesus could heal his son? He's a Jewish prophet, but think about it. Did the Jewish prophets generally go around healing people? Did Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Jonah, were these people famous for being healers? Um, no, no, and no. That's right. I, I don't <laughs> think that's no, no, and no. There's are three good answers right there. So uh, uh, there. I, however, there were some exceptions. The Elijah, I was thinking about the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17, that he heals the widow's son from Zarephath. And Elisha, shortly after that, 2 Kings chapter 4, the Shunammites, woman's dead son, is raised from the dead. Uh, The story of the healing of Naaman of leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. So there are a few examples where prophets would heal people, but in general, that's not what they did. In general, the prophets would come and say you're in sin, you need to repent and get this in order with your life, this is what God wants you to do, and that's what the prophets did. They weren't generally known as healers. So I'm thinking, why did this man go and ask Jesus to heal his son? Uh, So just wrestling with that, and um, uh, thinking, why would he ask Jesus? Well, Jesus recently had done a miracle of turning the water into wine at Cana. And so the man comes up to him in Cana. That causes a stir. His disciples all knew that he'd done a miracle. So maybe he thought, this man has the ability to do miracles, and so maybe he can heal my son. That's one possibility. The other possibility that I thought of is this guy is just completely desperate. His son is, de- is, is approaching death. He knows his son is about to die. And he has no place else to go, so he's desperate, and and he's looking for things. Well, this is this is a man of God. Maybe he can pray or lay hands on him, or maybe he has some in with God that he can do something that nobody else can do. So he's just desperate, as I can imagine any parent would be, whose child is mortally ill. I mean, this reminds me of something that happened with me with me and Allison. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Allison, if you can think about that. Okay, we were in a country in the Middle East, and I was, I was teaching a lesson in a, in a house church, and I'll just say that uh, uh, not too many people in the house church could speak English, and then I, w- I was interrupted, and they said there's an emergency. There's an emergency, and so a guy comes out of the back room. It's a man who's carrying his baby's son. And they said, there's an emergency. We heard that you were here. And we thought that you could pray for for this boy. And they said, this man, this girl. So it was was that the man had come from a, a village that was a few towns away. Heard that I was in town. I have no idea why he came there other than he was completely desperate and knew what, didn't know what else to do. But he'd heard that some guy who's a teacher is coming here, and uh, he's a Bible teacher, so he, he took a bus there to the town, and he came there, and he said, you know, he didn't even speak English, but he said, you know, my baby is very sick. And what happened was his child had, there was some kind of a medical procedure that apparently was, 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 was botched, it wasn't done right, uh, in the country where he came from, the med- medical establishment is not very good, and so uh, this his child was the kidneys were failing, and uh, so he, the, the doctor said that his child was going to be t- going blind in as a matter of time, and and and, and the baby just didn't look healthy either; it just looked very weak. It didn't seem to be with it, so he came. out. You can imagine how how I felt in that situation where everything has stopped, all the eyes are turning on me, and this guy has come here hoping that I can do something to heal his child. I've never, ever been in a situation like that. And it was so painful because I felt so helpless. My heart went out for the father, who's, who's deeply concerned about his child, and I wish that there was something I could do. And all I could say was, I don't have any power at all, I can pray to God. I just put my hands on the child and prayed, and just said, "God, I don't have any miraculous ability or anything, but I just pray that you'll somehow or other you will, you will, you'll take care of this child." It was just a heartbreaking experience, and uh, it just it just came came out of nowhere. But uh, it helped me to connect with the story of a very desperate father who's concerned about his son who's who's near death. But but that was the first thing I wondered is why do they ask Jesus and 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 maybe it's just maybe it's desperation I heard it was, heard he could perform miracles and then looking at the passage here in verse forty eight very interesting to me Jesus says unless you people see signs and wonders you will by no means believe so you know. First, why did they come to Jesus? And then this is one of this is the first example where Jesus heals somebody in the Gospel of John. Maybe the first time in the Gospels at all chronologically. But there are a lot of examples of Jesus healing people. Uh, there are lepers and blind people and lame people that Jesus heals. There are a lot of those stories in, in, in the Gospels. And uh, and this was one. He says, if you don't unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. So the next question I was asking, why did Jesus perform signs and wonders back then? I came to believe without seeing any signs and wonders. I've never seen anything that I would say is an authentic sign from God, and and I managed to come to faith. But why did Jesus have to do that back then? And... uh, So there's a couple couple of reasons, a couple of answers to that that I found in the scriptures, but I'm just wrestling with this. Why was this such an important part of the message? Jesus performed miracles and he did the teaching both. Uh, Acts chapter 2. It's a a passage that's very familiar to most of us, but I want to look at it from a little different angle here. In Acts chapter 2. This is on the day of Pentecost. Think about this. I want to think about what. Think about not just the passage Pete, that Peter is quoting from Joel, but the application that he's making. In Acts chapter two, I'm, I'm going to read verses sixteen down through twenty-two. But this is what is. This is on the day of Pentecost. He says, "This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it should come to pass in the last days," says God, "that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy." Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit on those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved." And then the point that he makes in verse 22, the men of Israel hear, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And so he goes on to talk about that. So I think he's taken this, this, this story from Joel, the prophecy from Joel is kind of an outline for what he's talking about. He says, first of all, God says, I will pour out my spirit which is what they just saw, the Spirit being poured out. He says, I'll show wonders in the heaven above and the earth beneath. And then he talks about the sun will be turned to darkness. Well, what's that talking about? When Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross from noon until three in the afternoon, it said the sun was turned to darkness. That's a fulfillment. Many of the early Christians saw that as a fulfillment of a prophecy in Amos chapter 8, that the sun will be turned to darkness the sun was set at noon, so the sun was turned to darkness. This was three hours of darkness on the whole land. Just a few, just a matter of weeks before he's speaking. He says there are going to be great signs, and then uh, the coming of the, uh, the the great and awesome day of the Lord. Whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's talking about the signs that God did, and then Jesus was was accredited to you by miracles, signs, and wonders. And then he, he, he explains that he is the Messiah and he tells them what they need to do to call on the name of the Lord. He says, repent and be baptized. So that's really the outline of what's going on right here. So Jesus performing signs and wonders was a fulfillment of prophecy here in Joel chapter 2. It's also, let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. So why did Jesus perform miracles? Miraculous signs. A lot of the prophets did not. In Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So he's saying that 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 the Messiah would heal people was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is the great prophecy about the suffering servant. and where it talks about he was led like like a lamb to the, to the like a sheep to the slaughter and the lamb before the shears was silent and it, it talks about Jesus suffering and rejection and death on the cross. It's a great prophecy. But part of that prophecy was that this would be someone who would take up, take away, heal the sicknesses of the people too. So he healed people in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah as well. Also, Luke chapter 4. Why did Jesus heal people? Near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is a he, he he goes to the synagogue, and I want to read Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Then the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard you done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So he reads the prophecy from Isaiah 61, and think about what Jesus gets out of it. They're saying, he says... Physician, heal yourself. The, the miracles you did at Capernaum, he's talking about healings here. Why don't you do some healings here, too? And he's saying, I'm not going to do them here, basically. That's, that's what his answer is. But he is, he, that's the point that he's making, is that his ability to heal people, to be the great physician who performed miracles as he did in Capernaum, which they had heard about, was a fulfillment of prophecy. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus performed miracles was fulfillment of prophecy. We've looked at three of them here already. Another prophecy that I think is in Deuteronomy 18, we've we've talked about this uh, uh, a bit in the past. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a prophecy that says the Lord says he will raise up a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And you must listen to him. Peter talks about in Acts chapter 3. Well, a prophet like Moses. Moses was a prophet who performed signs and wonders more than anybody in the Old Testament, honestly. And I remember in the story of Moses, when God calls Moses, he objects and says, I don't think I don't think I can do this and one of his objections is he says when I speak to the people and say you you told me to do these things they're not going to believe me. And so what does God say? Oh. He says I'll he says I'll give you. make them believe. He says I'll give you signs and wonders so that they will believe. And he gives, them, he gives Moses three signs. And then, of course, he brings the ten plagues and, 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 and there's the parting of the Red Sea. So there are many, many signs of, of, and wonders that Moses works. But he gives them the three signs and wonders. He start, one, the first one is he turns the staff into a snake. Uh, the second one, he turns the, uh, the leprous hand. The, he pulls out and heals it. And then the third one is turning the blood into water. He says, well, I'll show you. You'll, you'll be able to show miraculous signs and then the people will believe you that you came from God. So this is the prophet, like Moses, is he would perform miraculous signs so that the people would believe he sent from God. So, not only did Jesus perform miraculous signs, but when he sent out the 12 and he sent out the 70, they were given the ability to perform miraculous signs as well. So, being a close disciple of Jesus, he passed that ability somehow onto his close disciples. In Matthew 10, it says, he, he in verse 1, it says, well, he called his 12 disciples to him. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. So, this is amazing. These are the, they didn't just receive the teachings of Jesus, but he gave them ability to 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 heal diseases as well. He said, when you go out, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. So they had the ability to perform miracles as well as they were going around teaching. And uh, he does the same thing in Luke chapter 13 when he sends out the 72. Uh, and and it, remember, in, in Luke chapter 10, in, in verse 17, they come back, and the reaction is, the demons, even the demons submit to us. This is amazing. And, and Jesus' response to them is very sobering. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So that's what you need to be excited about not that that you have the ability to perform miracles but that you're you have eternal life before you that's the thing you really should be rejoicing over which is uh, encouraging for us uh, at least it is for me when Jesus rose from the dead he also when he sent the disciples out let's turn to Luke chapter 16 I'm sorry Mark chapter 16 he talked about miraculous signs that they would have in Mark chapter 16 and verse 14. It says, Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he would risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up servants, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying sign. So this was God's plan for initially evangelizing the world is that he'd send the people out and they would would preach the word, give the message of the kingdom, and they would perform miracles to attest to the power of God, including uh, not only healing the sick but drinking poison unharmed and, and handling poisonous serpents, poisonous snakes. The purpose of that, he says very clearly here in verse 20, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So they're, they're preaching the message, and they're, they're, he, God's confirming it through the miraculous signs. That was the purpose of that there. Um, uh, some people, I realize in, in the room here, we have uh, people who are using many different Bibles, and in some of your Bibles... It will make a reference to uh, uh, the ending on Mark being in question. It will say the earliest and most reliable. Some, some translations will say the earliest and most reliable uh, uh, manuscripts don't have this. and other translations, it will say almost all the manuscripts have this. There are just a few who don't. So it depends on which, which Bible you're reading. And uh, so uh, sometimes I get the question, well, the ending on Mark 16 is this is this, was this part of the original or not? And and, and uh, depending on which Bible you're, you're reading, you may have different opinions about that. I just, I stumbled on, uh, there was a, uh, it was was surprising, the questions that we ask today, the same questions came up in the early church. I was reading something, it was by Eusebius. Eusebius uh, lived in the, the early 300s, and uh, I think he died in 339, just to give you an idea. And, so somebody was asking him a question about, well, how do you reconcile this scripture with this scripture? And, and he was talking about the ending in Mark. And he said, actually, he said, some of our manuscripts, this is in the early 300s, some of our manuscripts have the longer ending in Mark and some of them don't. And so he said, uh, you know, some people, who ha- some people will want to choose one or the other. Uh, you know, want to, want to accept one and reject the other one. And there was, some, there was some dispute in the early 300s, so this goes way back. And, and then he said another view uh, from someone who's reluctant to consider anything at all in the text of the gospel as not being genu- genuine is that there is a twofold reading. As in many other places, that both are to be accepted. It's not for the faithful and devout to judge either as acceptable in preference to the other. So his attitude was, you know, we have we have in the right from very very early in the church there are two manuscripts of Mark that came out, and he says, uh, hey, it's none of our business to decide which one is the correct one. He says, well, we can accept them both as being as being as being worthwhile. It's none of our business to try to pick and choose between ancient, ancient manuscripts of the scriptures. So, uh, very charitable attitude about that, which I appreciate. Anyway, back back to the story here. So, and not only do we see in the ending of Mark about saying that these miraculous signs will be given and God will be confirming his word by the signs, but throughout the book of Acts, over and over again, it talks about that. Acts chapter 2 Uh, it talks about, uh, it it says in Acts 2.42, it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship breaking of bread and prayer. And then right after that it says, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The prayer for boldness in Acts chapter 4, they're praying, the apostles are praying and they say, Stretch out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, it talks about many the apostles did signs and wonders to the, for, for many of the people. And in Acts chapter 6, in the story of Stephen, the same thing. Uh, Simon the sorcerer, who's hanging around with Philip after he's baptized... He says he's amazed seeing the miracles and the signs that were done by Philip. And of course he gets in trouble uh, wanting to do the same thing. And, and, And the same thing with the Apostle Paul. So we see that this was a huge part of the message going out. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he reminds the Corinthians he says, truly the signs of an Apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So this was a huge part of the message going out to the church in the beginning. So uh, you know, question one question is well if that was going out in the church in the beginning, why isn't it around today? Well that's, um, that's that's a question beyond the course of this class of this, this particular lesson but uh, it's a good question and uh, uh, and the other que- question another question that we'll take a look at is if someone were to work signs and wonders today, what should our reaction be to that? Uh, would that be a clear sign of what, of what God is doing, if signs and wonders were to appear today? Uh, Matthew chapter 24. So while, while the word of God was confirmed with signs and wonders, that Jesus did them and the apostles did, Jesus also warned us about signs and wonders. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 24, I'll start in verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So Jesus doesn't say this might happen. Or here's what to do if it happens. He says it's going to happen. He says false, pro- false Christs are going to come. False prophets are going to come. They're going to deceive people and they will show great signs and wonders. So, obviously this isn't a sign that someone, that a spiritual leader rises up and can perform signs and wonders doesn't mean that they're from God at all. And I think about the story, going back to Moses, of the, the Egyptian sorcerers. Moses performed a miracle in front of Pharaoh, and the Egyptian sorcerers did the same thing. Moses turned his, uh, the, the, uh, the staff was turned into a serpent, and what did the Egyptian sorcerers do? They did the same thing. They threw their staffs down, and they became serpents also. And I like the way this resolved: is is Moses' serpent ends up devouring the other ones. And uh, so they, they lost their staffs that day. So, <laughs> And then the next thing, so that was round one. Round two is Moses turns the water into blood. And in Exodus chapter 7 the Egyptian sorcerers do the same thing. They can turn the water into blood, too. In round three, Moses brings up a plague of frogs all on the land, and the frogs take over everything. In round three, the magicians do the same thing. The Egyptian sorcerers create frogs. But then in round four, in round four we have the technical knockout, the TKO. That's where... <clears throat> This is the plague of lice. Because in the plague of lice, Moses creates lice that take over all the land. And the Egyptian magicians can't keep up. They they throw in the towel. They say, we give up. This is the finger of God. Mm -hmm. So what I learned from this is that from the beginning, people have been able to perform false miracles. However, they always get trumped and superseded by the miracles of God at the end. The miracles that are performed by God's people. Paul warns us about something I hope we will never see in our lifetimes, but we should, we should pay attention to this also. In 2 Thessalonians this is all about signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians chapter two. I'm going to read verses nine to twelve. The coming of the lawless one. Paul says, is according to the works of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul's saying the same things. This is a danger that's going to happen in the future, that Satan has the lawless one who's going to come, who's going to be influenced by Satan, that the powers of darkness can, produce, can show powers, signs, and lying wonders as well. Uh, but he says we need to hold on to the truth no matter what in the face of these things, and don't take pleasure in unrighteousness, because the the deceiver comes to pull people into sin and self indulgence, and and uses signs to do that. Revelation chapter twelve it talks about the uh, the beast, and and then the second beast that performs uh, in in chap- in Revelation chapter thirteen performs great signs and deceives those on the earth with the signs. So. This is a constant warning in Scripture about signs and wonders. So just, just, to, just to, 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 to put all this together, Jesus performed signs and wonders in fulfillment of prophecies that he was the one who was going to come. He also shows that he, is, he is, uh, was foreshadowing, that he was being foreshadowed by the life of Moses itself who showed signs and wonders. That some people would be so hard-hearted that they wouldn't even believe if they saw signs and wonders. But the sign, the purpose of the signs and wonders is to bring people to repentance, to bring people to faith and repentance, and we saw that throughout the book of Acts. But Satan can do miraculous signs as well, just like he did with the Egyptian sorcerers. So uh, don't be pulled away by signs and wonders. And signs and wonders... To me, there's the there's the obvious example of miraculous signs and wonders, but there are other things that will impress people and make them think, ah, this must be the working of God. This must be the movement of God. If this church is grown so fast, it could only be by the power of God that such a wonderful thing can happen. So, Put your mind in neutral and just assume that this is that this is a something of God because look at the evidence, look at the things around it. But you can't tell that. The only way, the only way you can tell what's true is by digging into the word of God, holding on to the truth no matter what, and not being faked out by signs and wonders. Because we're we're warned, false prophets are gonna come, false teachers are gonna come, people are gonna be showing all kinds of signs and wonders. But Jesus says, don't get fooled by that. Don't get led astray by that. We should expect these things. We have to hold on to the truth. We're always being tested. Let's pick it up in John chapter 5. Another story of signs and wonders. John chapter 5 I'm going to read the first 17 verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem by the Sheep gate is a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See... You've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the, told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he'd done many things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So let's. Uh, there's a lot in that little story right there. A uh, paralyzed man wants to be healed. When the water is, is, is stirred, the first one in the water gets healed. This is, this is, uh, this is what it says. The majority of texts uh, include the ending of, of verse 3 and verse 4, which, is, which is, explains the reason for this. It says that an angel stirs the water and the first one in gets, gets healed. Uh, Jesus, the man doesn't have to go down in the water. Jesus just heals him. And then the man gets criticized for carrying his bed. And then he explains it was Jesus, and Jesus gets criticized for healing him because he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath and he was healing the man on the Sabbath. And the people are so upset about Jesus doing things on the Sabbath that says they want to kill him. Uh, So, uh, And then Jesus sees the man again and gives him a very memorable warning Uh, about something he should learn from this this episode here. So, first thing I want to take a look at is people want to kill Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath. Is this an overreaction or what? What's that all about? Why were people uh, so upset about Jesus healing on the Sabbath? Now, Now, one thing this tells me is I listen to to the story that the enemies of Jesus are making up about him. They're not saying you didn't perform miracles. They're not saying you didn't heal somebody. They're saying you healed him on the wrong day of the week. There's seven days of the week. Pick one of the other six, and they're getting on him for that. So, obviously, his enemies agree that he's healing people, for starters. Um, uh, Now, Uh, Why did they want to kill him? Now, What what was the rule about the Sabbath? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Keeping the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. And let's just read for ourselves what it says there. To see, is is Jesus breaking the Sabbath or not? Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's go back and see why people were so... Agitated about Jesus doing things on the Sabbath and the man carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Okay. Third commandment, verse Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12. So observe Moses, uh, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor to do all your works, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, your sons, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, all your cattle, and all your resident aliens who dwell among you, that your male servant and your female servant, may rest as well as you. Remember, you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there into a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God ordered you to guard the Sabbath day and sanctify. So, not only they couldn't do any work, their servants couldn't do any work, Their animals couldn't even do any work. No working on the Sabbath for anybody. Uh, Now, so, uh, I also want to take a look at Exodus chapter 31. This is a little stronger statement here. i will give you a little different flavor for the Sabbath requirements. This is from Moses also. In Exodus chapter 31, this is a little stronger. Exodus chapter 31, starting in verse 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall direct the children of Israel saying, see to it, you should keep my Sabbaths for it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations. You may know I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbaths because this is holy for you to the Lord. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever works on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So he's saying right here, anybody who profanes the Sabbath is working on the Sabbath, kill them. Verse 15, Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath, the holy rest of the Lord. Whoever works on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel should keep the Sabbaths to observe them throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. This is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord created the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So um, this is pretty, pretty strong teaching. Sabbath was the last day of the week. It was Saturday. It's not Sunday. It was Saturday in the Old Testament. There's no place that talks about it changing there. So that's but that was it was part of the law of Moses that they have to keep the Sabbath. It, you know, at least you can understand, even if we're, they were wrong, at least you understand why they're so upset about... Their, the, the man is carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Now, what does it say? Does it say, don't carry your bed on the Sabbath? It says, don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, don't work. Is this working? I mean, I, I you know... I, I don't know. You want to be picky about it. Maybe how do you you define what work is? But, you know, that's not what I think of is carrying your bed back to your home. I don't think of that as work necessarily or healing somebody. Now, if I was in Jesus's shoes and somebody said, you, I want to kill you because you're breaking the Sabbath, you're doing work on the Sabbath by healing this guy. Now, what would your defense be? The natural defense would be, no, I'm not working on the Sabbath. I'm just healing somebody on the Sabbath. This person's bound and I'm I'm just loosing him. I'm just, I'm healing him on the Sabbath. I'm not working. But think about Jesus' response to his accusers. Instead of saying, no, I'm not doing any work, his response is, and In chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus' answer is, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. He says, Yes, I am working on the Sabbath. And my Father is working, and I am too. Now, that completely enraged the Jews because now not only is he breaking the Sabbath, first of all, he's admitting he's breaking the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. He's boasting, yes, I am working on the Sabbath and my father's working too. He's putting himself on the same plane with God by saying that Mm -hmm. and they get it and now they want to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. He's saying, I am the son of God, which is either true or it's a completely outrageous claim. So Jesus doubles down when they say you're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. He doesn't back off. Uh, so this is. Uh, we'll talk more about that in in the next in the next message. We'll we'll start to dig into that about uh, about when that 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 only makes things worse between him and his enemies, as you can imagine. But I want to close with just reflecting a little bit on the warning that he gave to the man. I mean, you think. He, they, they see each other again after the healing, and you think, great to see you. Hope you're feeling well. Wasn't that an awesome healing? You know, just, just a, a nice, encouraging, uh, feel-good uh, 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 statement after that. You think he wanna say, Jesus doesn't do that. He warns the man. Now, this is a guy who was paralyzed for 38 years. Imagine that. Somebody's paralyzed for 38 years they heals them, and and Jesus's response when he sees them again is, "You think that was bad? Only being paralyzed for thirty eight years." He says, "You better stop sinning, or something worse is going to happen to you." I mean, who preached like that even in the Old Testament among the greatest prophets? Jesus was the greatest preacher of repentance of all time. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 about lust. He said, you'd be better off gouging your eye out or chopping your hand off and to enter eternal life maimed than to be cast with your whole body into the fires of hell. That's what Jesus said about sin and the seriousness of sin. In Matthew chapter chapter 10 verse 28, he says, look... He's he's sending the disciples out. He said, don't be afraid of people. All they can do is kill you. Okay? Don't be afraid of them. That's nothing. He said, I'll tell you what you need to be afraid of. Uh, You need to be afraid of my father. That's the one you need to be afraid of because he is the one who can cast you into hell fire. That's the one to fear. Don't be afraid of people. Or Mark chapter 9, we'll close there. So, Jesus uses this healing even as a warning about the seriousness of sin that should sober all of us. Matthew chapter 9, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verse 30, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it will be better to him to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than having two hands to go to hell. Into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire, where the worm does not die and the fire. Is not quenched. So, uh, just a sober warning to us that Jesus even uses this opportunity of a miraculous healing of somebody who's paralyzed mm. for 38 years. There's worse things that can happen to you, much worse things, and and we all need to take take sin seriously uh, in, in view of the eternal consequences. We'll stop for there for now.